Hey, everybody, when you hear that music, you know it's time for another exciting episode of On the Ladder Side of Baseball. And here we are. It's uh, nearing the end of January. And what has Jed Hoyer done? Not a lot. Not a lot of anything. I mean, come on, dude. He signed a Japanese pitcher. We talked about that last time. He signed a big-time manager. He had a big-time manager. But anyway, we know how that is. And then uh, um, he goes out and makes a trade for a third baseman who he's going to play at first. I think he's given a little bit of talk to to uh, Boros, but uh, that's you never know. You never know at all. Hey, we're going to have a great guest today. I'm luckily, you know, my voice is feeling good, but I don't need to talk much with Mike Diaz, former. Uh, Pittsburgh Pirate, the only man to ever pinch hit for Barry Bonds, Rambo. We're going to talk to him a little bit about Jimmy Leland, the manager he loved and played for, who is going into the Hall of Fame this year in the Cooperstown in the summer of 2024. And speaking of Hall of Fame activity, in just three hours, we are going to know if my Todd Helton bat is worth a hoot. I know, I know. It's really not all about me, but yeah, it's all about me. Nelly, you know, Nelly was a great observer of baseball talent. And uh, I got two or three bats from Todd Helton that, that uh, Mr. Nelson procured for me. And he's had a bat or two of his own. So, I mean, right. I mean, it's not like the, the Hall of Fame. Yeah, maybe it's getting a little watered down from time to time. Looks like Adrian Beltre is a lock. I think Billy Wagner ought to be a lock. Um, but um, it's going to be a close call for him. Close call for a few guys. They'll probably have two or three guys, plus Leland, and a broadcaster and a writer and the whole deal. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to have fun with that. Uh, spring training, man. I mean, nobody's talking about it. The White Sox are talking about, you know, building a new stadium. Way to go, Jerry. I mean, seriously. Number one, God love Jerry's 87. The new stadium will be be uh, in use when Jerry turns 110. And uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think either Jerry's going to turn 110 or I don't think they're going to get a new ballpark. But, uh, you know, he keeps it interesting because he doesn't have a very good team. Uh, he went after a lot of guys on the Kansas City Royals. It'd be like the Bears going after the Carolina whatever, Panthers, you know, to get a bunch of coaches. Uh, I don't get it. A lot of things I don't get. I don't get how the Dodgers can spend a billion dollars and be in eighth place on the payroll. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm hung up on that. I, I love talking about payroll. I love Tampa Bay getting in. Got a nice message from my good friend Dwayne Stats. He's going to join our show in a week or two. And uh, today um, is going to be fun. Now, I always do a little research. Uh, we're going to talk a little, like I said, about Jimmy Leland, who I got to know because Nelly, everything in my baseball world, for the most part, I did manage to strike out against Bert Hooten on my own without even knowing Nelly. That was way back in my college career. Oh, man. I mean, I sustained, I sustained a lot of injuries. You know, my knees got hurt catching batting practice. Nobody catches batting practice, but... You know, I think the coach felt sorry for me. I worked hard, got on the team, and he was never going to play me much at all. 
and uh, so he let me catch batting practice. Catch his batting practice, you know? They put a screen in the back of the batting cage, and that's it, you know? I don't have a catcher in there. Anyway, that was my claim to fame. Um, but the, uh, the fun thing is I got to play, and then uh, uh, that was my non-Dave Nelson. 98% of my baseball contacts have included not only uh, my work in Kansas City uh, in the legal world, but also I give Dave his uh, credit where credit's due. I got to spend a lot of time in the White Sox coaches clubhouse. I don't know why. Did I really work? I mean, I, I, I saw a ton of baseball games. I mean, even through law school, we've talked about how uh, Nellie and I would get together at the Red Apple Lounge at our uh, interaction with the legendary Billy Martin. That was fun. One of the all-time great days of my life. And uh, got to spend a little time with Charlie Lau and Jimmy Leland and all sorts of cool coaches for the White Sox. And they actually, you know, it's a great thing about baseball guys. They, you know, they might, like Nelly wouldn't really think I knew what I was talking about, but most of these coaches who really didn't know me very well, they'd let me talk, you know. The only time I ever got told to shut up was at fantasy camps, the end of fantasy camp for the Cubs. And I talk about on the injured list. I was I was hurt early in fantasy camp. You know, how do you how do you get hurt in fantasy camp? I was playing first base, I stretched, my leg popped. Billy Williams goes, Was that your leg? I go, Yeah. And uh man, six months later my hammy was still black and blue. You know, what are you doing getting hurt at fantasy camp? But anyway, I wasn't the only one. Everybody's legs went south. Anyway, so uh um spent a lot of time in clubhouses with coaches. They were fun. You know, I didn't really dig being in clubhouses with the players. But I mean, who wouldn't like to hang out on a folding chair and uh talk to Bobby Winkles, talk to Charlie Lau, talk to uh Art um Kushner, a friend of Dave's, and all these guys. I mean, we uh we've had a few on the show. Uh, good friends of Dave's coached with him and uh, Jimmy Leland. So, uh, you know, Leland uh, is a little smoky in the clubhouse because Larusa, Leland, uh, I think Bill Nelly didn't smoke, Dave Duncan didn't smoke, ah, Charlie Lau smoked like a fiend, but I don't want to tell a story. You know, what's in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse, and that's my motto. And, uh, you know, was I really in the clubhouse? I was. So I go back, I'm getting ready, you know, got that get ready attitude for the season, getting ready for spring training, getting ready for the Cubs to just suck. And uh, so I'm getting ready for this today. And uh, as I said, Mike Diaz, who hit some great home runs, uh, I found a bunch of home runs, but this is a home run he hit when he, um, you know, he came up with the Cubs, but never made it to the major league, got traded. Uh, for Bobby Denier, my guest last week, uh, to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And um, comes back to Wrigley Field, and lo and behold, the legendary Harry Carey is on this call. So here we go, Mike Diaz hitting a ball that uh, Harry was a little bit surprised 
Let's see it fly out of Wrigley. Here we go. Singled in a run of the first, but now he's facing a right-hander. He's seldom bats against them. He used to be with the Cubs. Oh, look at him. Holy cow. No doubt about it. Out over the street. The kid on the other side of the street is, look how happy he is. That says one way, he hit him the wrong direction against the one-way side. Is he a happy young man? Did he ever cream that ball? As soon as it exploded off the bat, that's a seven-run inning for the Pirates. Seventh home run. RBI is 16, 17, and 18. And Mike Diaz, who can swing the bat, shows George Fraser what he can do here. That one was crushed. There's a ball going over the fence. We're showing it to you again. It hits in about the middle of the street. And there's the scramble for it. And there you have it, folks. Man, I love Harry. What a great... He was more excited about the kid chasing the ball across Waveland Avenue, and that ball did bounce over Waveland. I hit the middle of the street, bounced over Waveland, and uh, there was a one-way side out there, and the ball was going the wrong way against the one-way stop the one-way sign and Harry loved all that stuff I mean that was Harry he uh he would look at that he wasn't as dramatic and serious as as uh what we have today in the world of uh, uh these baseball baseball announcers but uh One simple we've got uh, a little bit of activity going here trying to get this back up I want to play it for um you know Mike Diaz I think you'll like to hear that so you'll hear it again so anyway um that's that. The uh, Hall of Fame, I think, is going to be an exciting thing to uh, watch tonight. Uh, spring training gets going soon. The White Sox and the Cubs play a spring training game in a month. The Cubs have not improved their pitching staff at all, other than to get this kid from uh, uh, Japan. And uh, who knows, man? Um, it's bleak. You know, what's Jed doing? He's acting like he wants to win, says all the right things, and then doesn't do anything. Yes, we're not going to make any silly moves, a.k.a. we're not going to make a move. That's been the Cubs deal. Uh, Hater, he's off the market, gone with the Astros. I mean, there's some stuff. It's kind of been a it's kind of been a drip, drip, drip season, offseason so far. I mean, there's still some names on the market, and Bellinger's still out there just painfully painfully punishing the Cub fans, trying to figure out if they're going to, uh, you know, ever get a deal done with Belly. We don't know. But we're going to uh, take a break. We're going to pause. And when we come back, we'll get uh, Mike Diaz on the phone. Hey, everybody, we are back on the Ladders Out of Baseball. And as promised, 
Mike Diaz, one of my favorite guests. This is the third or fourth year in a row we've had Mike. And it, it, if only I had laryngitis, I never have to talk, man. It's hilarious. <laughs> so, Mike, how are you doing, buddy? Well, hanging in there, best as can be. Being out in Maui has been a challenge. Well, I, I'll tell you what, and and uh, up until this past year, I would have laughed and said, challenge, man, I'm looking at a foot of snow in Chicago, ice storms, but uh, uh, goodness gracious, with the fires in Maui, how have you fared? Uh, you know what? There's three types of people out here, and most people that uh, that we get to talk to on a regular basis, the people who lost everything, yeah. literally everything other than the clothes on their back, and two, the people that have been displaced because of all the smoke and the soot, and you just can't get in line. The line is basically shut down. It's been leveled, and uh, nobody's going to let you in there uh, unless you get to go back to see the the house and go back there occasionally. But the water's no good, power's no good, and it's been what August day, so it's been about five months. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, then there's the third people, which uh, I'm lucky enough to be in, but not really working out for us. And that is the people in the third category, which are helping out those two groups. So I was, I had a couple of people staying in my house, a couple I don't even know. And uh, they were out walking the streets. It was almost like a bunch of zombies. It was, uh, it was really, really apocalyptic, catastrophic, disastrous to the point where you don't even know how to feel until it's in front of your face. And then all you can thank the good Lord is, Hey, it wasn't me, but right. it's kind of affected us just as much. The people that are helping them out from a standpoint of money, cars, food for a while, there our facility was giving $500 a week just for families to eat on. So we were trying to raise funds globally and it's, it's ironic, not really ironic, but it's kind of interesting that out of sight, out of mind. And when everything happened, Probably raised, I don't know, somewhere in the area of a couple hundred thousand dollars. But when you have 50 or more families that are out, that goes by in like months, if not weeks. Yeah. To go ahead and feed them and house them and everybody's staying in hotels and the hotels had to go ahead and start making money. So they let the tourists in and uh, they're displaced again. And then you have other people basically just say, Hey, we'll buy your, your, uh, your land. And they were basically stealing it. For right. four or five hundred thousand dollars and people are taking it and moving to other islands. So that's a lot of, you know, land poaching right now is what's going on there. Wow. And then that, what's what what what's what's the status of Lahaina right now? You said there's it's shut down. Is that still the case? One hundred percent. You don't get in or out unless you're a homeowner. And if you're a homeowner, they allow you to go back in to basically check your stuff or if you're rebuilding or the houses that are still standing which are few and far between, they have to go in there and uh, go in with hazmat suits. I mean, it's it's a bad situation. You know, the water's contaminated. They can't afford to go ahead and put the electricity on because everything's still down with Maui Electric. Lawsuits all over the place. I think the recovery period, and I'm no expert, my opinion is from past uh, knowledge in regards to reading the news with Paradise and Santa Rosa, we're probably on a five to 10, maybe even longer recovery period. But the problem is it's almost like buying a, a new land, a new piece of land and saying, hey, I want to build on it. And you can't get permits for, you know, years. So the question is, are these people going to be able to hold 
you know, and be able to pay long enough to go and build. I just don't see it. So Lahaina, as I recall, is it was pretty much the the main business district, restaurant district, um, uh, and that at least on that part of the island, and also a number of marinas that you know had commercial uh, business to other islands, and so the status of all that is just shut down. Pretty much, I mean, every day and. Should say more or less every week, people are getting closer to the goal. So the goal obviously is to rebuild. It'll never be built like it was. I don't know if you're familiar, but it used to be the capital of Hawaii. It was our, you know, so-called kingdom where that's where everything went through. And then they changed it over to Oahu over there in Honolulu. That all being said, I mean, old town Lahaina, it, it's done. It's over. I wow. mean, if you can wow. just imagine being leveled completely, the only thing standing are a few cement structures. A banyan tree and I think a church, but for the most part, it's been uh, the devastation. I can't even explain it. I went to the mainland for about two weeks to get away. <clears throat> I went and did uh, officiated my nephew's wedding, and to get away, listening to all the people say, "Well, is this what's happened?" Because this is what's on the news. I go, "The news ain't doing it anywhere near the justice of being on ground zero. So I walk it literally every probably. Every other day, because I'm dealing with a lot of my clients. So I have a little bit over 150 clients that uh, over 50 of them have been displaced or lost everything. Wow. Are they still able to participate in in your school and your practice? Or was that the last thing in, in on their mind? Well, it isn't. It's probably the first thing on their mind to get back to normalcy. So they've all had to go ahead and move schools. They've all moved a half hour to 45 minutes away. So we're in a place called uh, Kaolui or Wailuku, <clears throat> excuse me, and everybody's basically gone to an aunt, an uncle, grandma, grandpa, or a friend's house because you don't have any type of living from businesses to anything in Lahaina. So they've all been forced to move. And then another portion have just picked up and gone to the different islands. They've either gone to Oahu or they've gone to the big island. Or they've gone to Kauai or Molokai even. Right. The bottom line is the families here are very, very strong and tight. So it's affected mine because we can't charge them. So the last thing we're going to do is say, because you've lost everything, you can't come anymore. Right. So we've basically scholarshiped a little bit of over 50 families. It's kind of put us back. Sure. Kind of put everybody back. And wow. we're just trying to hold on by the skin of our teeth saying, hey, Good Lord willing, it's going to go ahead and be okay. Uh, the worst thing that could happen to us is we fold and we can't make our payments anymore, but we're still alive. We didn't lose anything but money. So that's yeah. kind of what we feel. And the main airport is where? That's okay. right there in, uh, where they call it. Why? That's uh, Kaului, Kaului mm-hmm. Airport, OGG. Right. That's pretty much the only big airport. The rest of them are all little small private planes. So is there any is there any entity that if somebody wanted to contribute, send some money over there, uh, where would they send money to? That's an interesting uh, an interesting question because all of my family and friends on the mainland, all across the mainland, have said that. And what we have found is a lot of the money that they're sending to these big groups like FEMA and Red Cross, none of our families are receiving a dime. Uh, we had one ball player. You're going to be real familiar with him real soon. 
and you can look him up. He was the number one pick for Atlanta last year. His name's J.R. Uh, what's his last name? Richie. He was the number one pick, pitcher out of high school. And uh, J.R. Richie's been coming here. It's a neat story. He's been coming here since he's been, God, one, two years old with his family. Uh, his dad, uh, Ian Richie, was a gentleman who happened to invent, you're going to laugh, fantasy football. Wow. So he got the job with Sports Illustrated doing fantasy football, and here his son falls in love with baseball. So he used to come out here and train with us all the time for several years. Um, I had an outdoor facility that was called Hitter's Paradise, and we flipped it to an indoor facility over the last three years now. He's been working out with us, and he went to a school out in Washington. I think it was Braintree or something. I don't know the name of the place. But long story short, he was drafted number one by the Braves. So, ironically enough, we go ahead and have this catastrophe, this devastation. All of a sudden, this kid out of nowhere starts up a fundraising deal with the Braves. So he finds money to give to the people, finds clothes. His mother flies out here, <clears throat> goes out and helps out. I mean, just an unbelievable, heartwarming story to where kind of a second home, but took care of as many people as he can. Yeah, that's uh, great. But, but that only goes so far. I mean, right. you can't expect everybody to do that. Now, we've also tried to go out there to the big wigs like the Oprahs, the Rock, um, Ellison's. And they say, well, we're going to go ahead. <laughs> this is funny. We're going to go ahead and pledge $100 million. <laughs> well, nobody has seen a dime. Yeah. So when you ask that question, the long story to make it longer is, if you want to donate money, I'll give you the address of the families to give to. I got you. But going, going through the government is the last thing, if I had money to give, which I do every week through our facility. I make sure it goes straight from my hands to their hands. Yeah. Because they're not going to get it otherwise. Was the outdoor facility affected by the fires? I don't know how the proximity of it was to Lahaina. No, uh, not at all. The outdoor facility is in Kihei. That's been shut down. We sold. And then uh, we have an indoor facility right now in Kaului. So Kaului and Wailuku are towns that are, you know, right together. Like closer than Naperville and, you know, the greater city of Chicago. So you look at it. The reason I bring that up is I travel a half hour because Naperville is so beautiful. Yeah. So long story short, being out there, and then uh, I had a house out in Oak Brook also for the, when I was playing with the, uh, the White Sox, and that was pretty cool too. But we're literally less than 30 minutes away. So where you fly in at is called Kalui. Wailuku is right where the facility's at, which is less than five minutes from the airport and it's more of an industrial area. And then you have your West side, which is more or less for tourists, which was Lahaina. That's out. Right. And you have Kapalua where they played the big golf tournament. Right. That's still going. And, uh, but it's limited. And then they and have Kanapali, Kanapali is right over near Kapalua, right? Kanapali is right next door to Lahaina. They were affected a little bit too. I gotcha. It's well, just, I mean, two lane freeways, I mean, now one lane, now it's really tough to explain. I mean, it's it's something that unless you see it firsthand, all you see is pictures. And uh, the pictures don't do it anywhere near justice. Yeah. And, and you know, because it's the uh, the island paradise that everybody has 
visited or has an image of, including myself, I don't, you know, I just assumed that, um, that everything would grow back and the, uh, restaurants would all be restored and the, uh, businesses would all get back. And it talk about out of sight, out of mind. I mean, it's like, well, everything's fine. And I, you know, we've got relatives, you, you know, you had uh, him in school, uh, Ranger Seguin way back. And right. so they were out there and, and, uh, um, go back and forth between the mainland. So yeah, it's just something that, um, that you just don't think about, man. You know, yeah. what's interesting beautiful. though, without, without your support of coming here and visiting, we're under, uh, yes. so tourism is everything. So we tell people, we still have Wailuku, we still have Kalui, we still have Upcountry, Makawao, Pukulani, but most of all, you have the Wailea. Yeah. The Wailea Kia area is basically taken over from the resorts that uh, that were in Lahaina. And again, you still have Kapalua. So just probably a third of the island is devastated physically, but uh, as far as emotionally and the mental side and the spiritual side of everything that's happened. The locals are here, which I am right now. Um, yeah, I'm still a Holly, but being here for so many years, the local part of it, it's crazy because you walk down the streets and everybody's walking zombies. You just don't know what to do. Yeah. So without outside help from the people like the Oprah's and the rocks and all these movie stars, it's disheartening when they say, hey, we're starting up a foundation. Why don't you donate to our foundation? Well, what happened to you putting in, you know, 10, 20 mil? <laughs> yeah. That's like me. Honestly, that's like you and I spending 10 bucks. But for me to go ahead and comment on what their finances is really reckless. I don't know what they're doing and they're probably giving like crazy. All I know is what, like, you know, we see on TV and we read on the internet and it is what it is. So I don't know what truth is. All I know is. They do have residences here. Um, we have incredible amount of celebrity here. I mean, Don Nelson played golf with them, and he has like eight homes. He gave all the homes to all the people. He said, use my homes. Now, I know that directly because I know Don Nelson. So you you don't know these other people, but all you can go on is what you hear. Right. But right. I know if this was my home, my home is Pacifica, California, uh, where I was born and raised, but I was there for 17 years and left. But I do know this, since my mother and my father passed, I have no I have no connection there other yeah. than my history, where most of the people don't even know me because they're all imports. Yeah. And it's South Francisco. I think that you know, that's that's true a lot of times. You you grow up in a certain area and then uh as time goes by and, and uh uh parents parents pass on, um the connections become less and less and less. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had some good connections in Chicago. You know, you came up in the Cubs organization, but spent time in the big leagues with the White Sox. And so um, we lit, we're talking right now. I'm looking out the the window, and it's Oak Brook. So we're uh, we're um, you know in a nice community with a foot of snow. Thinking you got it made out in Maui, and of course that's not quite the case yeah. these days. It was a uh, it was a yeah. August 1st last year, but probably uh, gone through a lot. I spoke with one of your buddies, Angelosi, not, not too long ago, and um, he seems to be doing good. And I think he and 
uh, Bo Jackson still have their hitting schools scattered around, and uh, mm-hmm. get him. And we keep uh, uh, scheduling golf or scheduling things that get get uh, canceled and things come up. But I was um, a couple things. It's Hall of Fame Day today. You know they're announcing the Hall of Fame, which. You know, you may or may not be thinking about these days. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I was, I was uh, looking forward to a couple guys getting in. And, and then, of course, your former manager uh, is going to be inducted in July. And so um, visit a little bit about Jimmy Leland. I, I spent a little time just when he was a coach with the White Sox and my buddy Nelly was uh, a coach. But um he seemed like a genuinely spectacularly nice guy who just lived and breathed baseball. Yeah, my experience with Jim Leland, uh, I can't say enough how he turned me into more of a man than he did a ball player. And I say that because he took the time to go ahead, and that's why I think everybody says he's a, a manager or a player's manager. He takes the time individually to find out who you are, and he's real with you. He used to say, hey, Rambo. You can't do this. You can't do that. But, man, you can do this, <laughs> you know. In fact, right. he even told me, he goes, you're the second best right-handed hitter that I've ever had in my career that I've coached. And this was him and Sid Thrift. And what are you talking about? He says, well, Johnny Ray, who I used to hit behind, Johnny would hit third, I'd hit fourth. And uh says, Johnny Ray's the best hitter. I said, well, he's a switch hitter. Said, but right-handed, that man can hit. And I got to agree with him. But he said in a book with quotations, him and Sid Thrift, that Mike Diaz, who would know Mike Diaz? I mean, who even cares about Mike Diaz? That being said, that I was the second best right-handed hitter that he's ever coached, and that was something. Yeah. And the other thing I have to say about Jim Lee, and I would say that to him today, was I ended up uh, going from the White Sox to uh, Lotte Orion in Japan for financial reasons. So obviously baseball's fame, fortune, and what do you want to live for? Well, at the time in my career, I'd never made more than three hundred plus thousand dollars, which people that's a lot of money. Now, minor leaguers are getting paid that now, but back in the the eighties, seventies, and eighties, that was a you know a good living. That doesn't exist. So I had the opportunity to go for significant seven figure money, and I got uh, the White Sox, and they came to him and bought me out, and Bill Madlock was over there, and. He says, Rambo, these guys want you so bad. And I was right in the you know heart of my career. But I had had four children. I'd been married already 20-some-odd years. It was something that I had to make a decision. So the reason I bring this up is I went there. went there in 1989, and I left in 93, put five years in Japan. Every offseason, I'd come back because we'd, we'd go ahead and end a little bit earlier. So I'd come back, and I would never forget seeing Skip Jimmy Leland, when they were playing in San Francisco, my hometown. So they're playing a candlestick. All my buddies are still there, Kenji included. Went out and said hi. I had all the toys. I'd bought a Porsche and showing off and being stupid. You know, most kids that have money never had it. We go buy our stupid toys, and I did. At that point in time, I come out in the field. We're batting practice. I go into his office on the road, and lo and behold, there's my poster of Rambo. <laughs> I'm going, man, it's good to see that I'm not forgotten. He had no idea I was coming. So he says, Rambo, you're one of my favorite players, and these are the reasons. You know, he used to tell me I'm the slowest guy on earth. Uh, I'm not a good defensive player, yet I played five positions for him. I played first, third, right, left, and caught. 
But uh, damn, you could hit. And the best story I could tell about Jim Leland is, uh, well, uh, we're playing against, I think it was the Mets, and they had good left-handed relievers, uh, the best being Jesse Orozco. And uh, first game of a doubleheader, and he tells me to get the bat, pick it up, put my helmet on, and walk around. And I said, who, you know, what, what's going on? He said, well, if the situation gets where there's a man on third or a man on second, nobody out, needs you to come up and drive the ball. And he goes, but I want to really tell you, you're not getting in the game. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about, Skip? <laughs> He's kind of laughing. He goes, if you're walking around and uh, the other guy see it, that lefty ain't coming in the game. <laughs> that way we yep. can keep Specky, we can keep all of our lefties, Bonds and everything. We weren't doing really well against lefties. Yeah. He ain't coming in. So great. So who's going to come in? Roger McDowell. So okay, okay, cool. That's fine. So long story short, who comes in? Roger Jesse. McDowell. Oh. And I get to hit. Well, guess what happens? He throws me a sinker inside, and I hit a three-run home run. That's great. <laughs> hey, speaking of that, I, I don't know if you'll be able to hear this, man, but sit back two seconds because you could you could put a charge into the baseball, and I just I just. This is dear old Harry Carey. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it a, a time or two before, but uh, Harry on the broadcast with you playing for the Pirates. He singled in a run for the first, but now he's facing a right-hander. He seldom bats against them. He used to be with the Cubs. Oh, Holy cow! No doubt about it! Out on the street. Get on the other side of the street and look how happy he is. <laughs> you know what? That was a great swing. I watched That's the classic. Brothers. I watched you hit a home run uh, at uh, Sox Park, the cell or whatever it was called. But not only did it, did I enjoy seeing that sweet swing of yours, and that was like, I think I said 16, 17, 18 RBI. So you got some, you got some ribbies in there. But, but to me, the fun of baseball are guys like Harry, Harry Carey, uh, Dwayne Stats, Euchre, um, that bring the baseball game to just an ordinary, regular guy's event. Yeah, that's priceless. And, uh, you know, he was more excited with the kid running across Waveland Avenue than he was <laughs> with that George Frazier just gave him up like the eighth run of the inning. And, yeah. uh, he, oh, man, that was great. But what a great swing. You 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 had some pop, baby. Well, thank you. But you know what? I was told out of the five tools, I had one. <laughs> and it was good enough to get to the big leagues. I always tell kids. You know, I'm not, uh, I'm nothing special, but I was good enough to hit in the big leagues and hit home runs often. But long story short, between hitting for power, hitting for average, throwing the ball, running and catching the ball, I did them all and I did them, you know, well enough to be average, but I'm not full of myself. I wasn't great on defense, but I did play defense in the big leagues and I did play five positions in the big leagues, but I could hit and I could hit better than most. I, in fact, I used to mock Barry Bonds. I used to mock all hitters. And we'd face people like Ryan, J.R. Richard, uh, Doc Gooden, whatever. And it was funny. And 
Sid will laugh about this. Sid Bream. I don't know if you remember that man's name. Sure do. So we used to rotate at first base. We'd go back and forth. Famous slide in the home plate for the Braves victory. Exactly. So we go into Houston and we're playing Mike Scott. You know, we're they had two great lefties and uh, Nolan Ryan. So they had quite a staff. Well, ironically, and I guess Sid will laugh about this because he's not like this. I know it. But the irony of it was he'd be sick. <laughs> so here I am facing sure. Nolan yeah. Ryan, Mike Scott with the best splitter in the game. And Alan Bashby catching him. What are you doing hitting here? I go, well, you know, my boy's hurt. <laughs> my boy's sick. And I go, just let me get one hit, all right? Throw it even close. Yeah. That was back in the Astrodome days. Yeah. A lot of your listeners, I'm sure, don't even remember the Astrodome, but it was awesome. quite a it was quite a thrill back in the day. We don't have quite the covers that they do now with social media. I don't even know. I'd probably be a social media deviant. We had social media back then. You well, know, just to go ahead and have my own show. <laughs> well, our firm had a law office in Houston, of all places, and we we spent about four years getting ready for a six-month trial on a Superfund waste site south of the city. And, I mean, we'd live down there for a week or two and then come back to Chicago or Kansas City or wherever. And so, yeah, I mean, I I spent a lot of nights at the Astrodome. But the, yeah. the, uh, with Scott and Nolan Ryan and uh, some of those other guys, from a fan standpoint, you know, unless you were unless you were excited about a shutout, it could, yeah. it could drag on there in the Astrodome. But, yeah, they were amazing. They were simply amazing. And, and the, back seats, then, the seats were nice, you know. Well, everything, everything about it, because it was an original. It yeah. was amazing. Yeah. Uh, but the the turf was nasty. The turf had lips. When the ball got up into the the sky up there, I guess the the roof, it, you couldn't see it. So everybody would lose. But it was worse than the Metrodome. Yeah. So a lot of the stadiums were a little bit before their time. They didn't know how to engineer them correctly. But nowadays, I look. I very rarely get to go because I'm not on the mainland hardly at all. But when I do go to games and I go to these new stadiums, it's like, wow, why would I ever leave? This is the resort. It's no longer a baseball game. It's literally an event. You know, got the finest restaurants, the finest workout facilities. Players could literally sleep there and sleep better at the facility than they did, you know, at their own place. Yeah. Well, you look at Petco Park in San Diego, um, not only do they have great food and uh, a great atmosphere to watch the ball game, but I mean, it's a shopping center. You can go and sample some really nice wines from California and exactly. uh, probably everywhere else. And, and oh, by the way, there's a ball game going on. Uh, yeah. Same can be said about, you know, the field in San Francisco. I kind of, you know, I, I, I liked Payne Park. I like McKay oh, yeah. Field. <laughs> You know, you saw McKegney a little bit back in the day. I played McKegney all the time. What a what a great dumpy ballpark that was. I know. I, I loved know. it. And then Payne Park in Sarasota, you know, I'd 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 go to Nellie and I had kind of a sports agency. We signed Cangelosi and a few other guys before they fire us. And I can remember two funny things. I parked my car behind the left field fence and, and uh uh Ron Kittle hit a ball through my rental car window, bam. <laughs> I mean, it was gone. And then, yeah. then Nelly and I, after a game, we were going to go play golf or something. And uh, damn, if I didn't lock the 
which, you know, I'm, I'm glad to know I was doing stupid things way back then. I like keys <laughs> in my, in the trunk of this rental car. And of course, we come out of the clubhouse and Nelly goes, Hey, let's go. And I go, Hey, Dave, little, little bad news. I can't tell you how many of the fellow White Sox back then uh, gave me a little grief for it. I don't know how we got the keys out, but man, I love yeah. those ballparks were great. Yeah, I played my whole rookie year in 78 at Payne Park. That was with, uh, when I was with the Cubs in uh, Bradenton, Florida. That was our most yeah. of our home games at night. And obviously that was the White Sox spring training site. Absolutely. So we played a lot of our games there. And, you know, the biggest thing that I think people that are really baseball savants forget about is the Kansas City Royals Academy. So they were there also. And that was Sid Thrift. And Bill Harrison, along with uh, Ewing Kaufman, is that his name, the guy that? Yeah, Ewing it? Kaufman was yeah. the, the owner, and he came up with the, uh, or his his guys uh, came yeah. up with that. And, of course, he well, was I, innovative. He, he invented our, uh, a medication for helping with arthritis by grinding wow. oyster shells. I didn't and know that. That's how, in his garage, and that led the that led the Marion Laboratories, um, uh, worldwide pharmaceutical company, which merged with Dow Chemical to become Marion Merrill Dow, and that was Ewing frigging grind up wow. shells in his garage, Kaufman. Wow, what a what a story there! Man. I, was, I was just fascinated with it when I went there. It was me, Carmelo Martinez, uh, Henry Cotto, a lot of oh, big leaguers were down there, and yeah. in the we're watching in the camps down there. This is back in 78. You're talking about uh, Frank White, George Brett. Um, you're talking about Quisenberry. You're talking about all the yeah. who's who. And the model, when I got to meet Dr. Bill Harrison, the model of basically bringing athletes, drafting athletes, and making them become baseball players, to me, it was phenomenal. Because most baseball players, they can't play basketball. They can't play football. They just play baseball. Yeah. So these guys said, let me do the opposite. Let me bring an athlete and turn him into a baseball player. And it worked pretty darn well, if you ask me. Yeah. But uh, that, that sense has gone away, and I think that's a, a model that's missing other than uh, I think IMG's doing something like that. Yeah. Uh, that's always been a goal for me to do that out here in Maui. That'd be great. I think the uh, uh, the Dominican kind of, you know, a lot of the Dominicans yep. – uh, seem to look for, you know, more than just the ability to go in the hole and field a ground ball at short and throw to first. But, you know, I think UL Washington. Now, you know, Frank White was in that era. McCray, Willie Wilson, as you named him, yep. Brent Quirk. Uh, um, oh man, he was a manager for the Pirates. Um, God, what was it? Uh, Clint Hurdle. Uh, Clint Hurdle, yeah, kind of in that group with George and Jamie Quirk. But I think UL Washington may have been the guy that they recruited that wasn't a ball player and turned him into a ball player. And of course, he certainly was instrumental in the uh, I think the '85 World Series. UL, yeah, him and Buddy Biancalana, yeah. Oh man, I love Buddy. Yeah, we've talked about that, man. Yeah, you need to yeah. track Buddy down because we have. He's in Nebraska. He's in Nebraska. I'm going to I'm gonna track him down. Man, oh, man. Yeah, what a, what a great guy. But uh, UL was a teammate of mine, too. In fact, we played golf with them out in Stone Mountain in Atlanta. We played in Atlanta, and me, him, and 
Benny DiStefano and <clears throat> I think it was Joe Orsolak. Wow. I mean, it seems like it was yesterday. But you know, uh, that's what's so different about baseball, <clears throat> football, basketball, hockey, whatever. You guys have so many interconnected friendships. Yeah. And, and you remember you can uh, you can go through if you ran into a guy that you hit a home run off of George Fraser. If you ran into yeah. Fraser in a bar or in a library or on the street, you yeah. have to start talking and you know the kind of pitch you just hit out of Wrigley Field. Exactly. That's exactly. What's unbelievable? And well, the best story there uh, to be quick on that one is Steve Trout came out here. Yeah. So the uh, Rainbow Trout's out here in Maui. And I heard that he was uh, managing Molokai, the high school team. He comes out here and he says, hey, Rambo, I'm looking for a job. I want to go ahead and coach and do lessons. And I say, hey, fine, come on to my facility. Comes down, does some lessons of all this. And a kid comes up to me, brings his phone. He goes, Coach Mike, he says, isn't this the guy you took deep? What are you talking about? He goes, oh, yeah, you hit a slider, threw it inside, and you took it out of the stadium. I go, I've never seen that. So he shows me on YouTube. Me and Trout are cracking up going, man. You're just one of I forgot. I don't remember you. <laughs> Isn't that great? I mean, that's yeah, but great. Uh, so, of course, I always pull out your baseball card, and this one was the '88 Fleer card. And in the, it's kind of interesting the way Fleer published that year. They have in a row Barry Bonds, Bobby Bonilla, Sid Bream, Candyman, and Drayback, Dunn, Fisher, Brett Gideon. Uh, Harper, Kipper, Mike Lavalier, all these dudes, man. And I'm going, you know, Rambo's gonna, you know, he's gonna have a million stories on each one of those guys, but <laughs> every one of them. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Hey, hey, uh, that's got to be for the uh, for the people who don't not that can't hear that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Drayback and Cangelosi both have their ties with the White Sox organization, and yeah. uh, you know, I. Uh, Johnny Bowles, uh, I didn't realize Candyman wrote a book. Cangelosi has a book out, and he talks about John Bowles, who, when we had the, uh, when we owned the um, Omaha Royals, Bowles was our manager, and then he went, uh, you know, on to be the um, big big time with the Royals, and then he he was the manager of the Marlins. Uh, of course. Yeah. I, I, I and Reinsdorf gave me his number. I got to get Bullsey on the phone because I'm not sure why he left or why he stayed away. I'm sure there's reasons, maybe private, but he was sure. such a good guy and such a good manager, and, and he was so successful. And I would imagine Dombrowski would have dragged him out again if if he wanted to uh, have a, a rerun. But as a as a guy that rode the bench most of his collegiate career, I'm speaking of myself. You know, and even sometimes as a lawyer, I'd stay up all night worrying about this or worrying about that. So I was laughing when you said out of the five tools, you had one tool, but yet you played five positions in the major league. When you knew you were going to, when you knew that you were getting penciled in to play first base or the outfield or to catch, did you have butterflies, hard time sleeping? Wondering what in the hell am I doing here? Or yeah. was it just, hey man, roll with the flow? Well, it's an interesting question because 
I do that every day with the kids that I coach nowadays. And yes, when you take a test academically, you have butterflies and you're unsure when you don't do one thing that is study. <laughs> when you're, when you've studied and you're overprepared, it's, it's, you're ready. I tell people it's so easy that I go through it. I'm worried about where I'm going to go eat lunch. <clears throat> so when I learned uh, work ethic from all of my different people in field, um, I learned from Milt May, uh, catching was more Johnny Bench and uh, more or less uh, Randy Hunley. Outfield was all Bill Verdon. Uh, first base, a lot with um, the, uh, God, God rest his soul, um, Pop Stargell. And you see all these guys that are around you that we didn't have the internet back then. Yeah. But I knew based on their success and based on asking questions and Watching their work ethic, them getting to the park at noon and leaving the park at 1 you know, a.m. in the morning, I'm like, there's something to this. <laughs> so my feeling was if I ever wanted to be rich, I surely would be talking to a rich person. It wouldn't be my next-door neighbor. <laughs> These people used to crack me up and sit there and talk to their buddy about how to hit. He's just as bad as you, if not worse. Yeah. Talk to the guy that can hit. So my guy that kind of I bounced everything off hitting was Johnny Ray. Johnny Ray could hit from the right side to the left side. He understood vision. He understood the mental toughness. He understood how to set people up. So he was kind of my mentor as a player. But uh, the answer to your question is, is I had taken so many ground balls at third base, at first base, right field, left field, and catch. Imagine one player just having one position to master. I had to master five. And people go, well, the outfield is the outfield. No, it's not. Right field is completely different than left field. First base is dramatically different than third base. Yeah. And God knows catching like being a quarterback. Where you going to get a wide receiver and say, hey, you're a quarterback today. So I was good enough to go ahead and not embarrass myself. Uh, I ended up going to Japan and becoming a full-time catcher, which is my favorite position, and I excelled. Uh, I just didn't have the opportunity because who's going to play ahead of Carlton Fisk? Who's going to play ahead of Tony Pena? Who's going to play against or ahead of Darren Dalton? Who's going to play ahead of these guys are all perennial all stars and I could hit better than all of them. So in fact, Leland was responsible for that. He said, Rambo, you better figure out a way to play another position. And as God is my witness, as we're here today, I never took a fly ball ever in my life until Jim Leland says, you're going to play right and left field. I didn't even have a glove. Yeah, that's great. So he said, but if I'm going to get your bat in the lineup, you think I'm better learn how to play outfield. And I'm like in spring training going, oh, shit. Now what? <laughs> what would you, if you flash forward 30 or 40 years, however many, not doing the math, would you like or dislike the fact that you would be slotted in as a DH now? Um you know what? It really wouldn't matter to me because I like to just swing the bat. I love defense too, but yeah. swinging the bat, there's no other, no other mind game that you could play better than that. People think it's all physical. No, I'm smarter than you, so I'm going to beat you. I might get myself out, but you're never going to get me out. In fact, today I always tell pitchers, you're not even an athlete. I don't even like you, <laughs> but be able to go ahead and speak with other hitters about how we set up pitchers. And I was, kind of in the middle because I'm a catcher and I'm the pitcher's, you know, buddy. 
I'd yeah. sit in those meetings and I'm going, I've been in the hitters meetings. I've been in the pitchers meetings. You guys aren't even close to what those hitters are thinking. So I have both sides. Sure. Said, the best thing for you to do is sit into a hitters meeting. So when I was with the White Sox, I told Pudge that. And uh, we have some veterans over there. Jack McDowell. We had the lefty. Uh, what was his name? Through for the Dodgers. Oh, God. Anyway, there was a it wasn't Bannister. No. Um, tall guy, kind of uh, blondish hair. He was older. He's probably about 70 now. Um, he said his name, I'd remember it. Anyway, long story short, they were veterans. And my suggestion was I used to work out with Pudge all the time at the end of the day. You go in the weight room, and I don't know if you've been in a tall Comiskey weight room, but it's about 10 by 10. You know, you could just go ahead and run into each other and, it was really old. So I'd go in there after the game. I didn't know anybody. And he took me under his wing. And he was telling me, some of the stuff you're talking about makes sense, this and that. He said, I'm going to try that. And it was just an honor to be able to speak with Pudge about how to hit, about situations and all those things, the skull sessions that he took me through, which made me a student of the game. And I realized that everybody physically are only going to get so good. You're not going to throw the ball 110. You're not going to run down to first base in two flat. You're not going to hit the ball 800 feet. You're going to hit a wall physically. And as long as you're doing everything you can to your limits with your work ethic on a consistent basis, you'll reach that. But there is no limit on visualization. There is no limit on mentally how much you can learn. And I found out from smart people, way smarter than me. In fact, his name was Zig Ziglar. And Zig, he took me under his wing and Zig says to me, he says, you realize that you're not even using 10% of your brain? I go, why do you say that? He because we don't work out like we do physically. We're worried about this, worried about that. And he started going through these brain exercises, and I felt like I was a kid. It was like, wow, you know, I know I'm not a college graduate, but I, I thought I was smarter than, you know, what you're putting out there. And he said, no, I need you to look at this. I need you to study that. But it was always almost a riddle. He made me think. You know, most times school is you study for a test, you take the test, it's over, you ace it, and then two years from now, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Calculus, pre-cal, right. biology, all this. I'm like, right? I studied to take a test. What I learned in life from people like him and people from Leland is study to keep it as a life lesson where you can learn it for life and repeat it. So I think my success in uh, coaching and managing now with these kids, anywhere from pro all the way up, is to let them know it's not going to happen overnight, people. And unless you incorporate it in your life, whether it's your nutrition, your work ethic, your knowledge, your mental toughness, your visualization. <laughs> Real quick, I told a guy the other day, his name is Joshua Mears. He was a 48th pick five years ago. And I says, do you have sex? He starts laughing. <laughs> you know, the 22-year-old kid, I goes, what kind of question is that? I says, have you had sex? And he says, coach, really, seriously. I go, let me explain. A-V-C-E-X. Have sex. He goes, what are you talking about, have sex? I said, well, I used to have sex every pitch. So why do you have sex? Well, first thing I did was I analyzed the A. So if I analyze things, I get a good idea of, where the bases were at, where the players are playing, everything's going on with the weather, the situation. I'm analyzing, okay? Something you don't do. You just go up and react. I already knew what I was going to do. The V, 
I visualize what I'm going to do. He says, what do you mean about visualization? So there's only two things in visualization. You can pre-play it. means you've never done it, but you can dream it. Close your eyes and visualize what you want to do. I mean, think about when we we're kids. Man, I hope I hit that home run. Bottom of the ninth, two out. Bases are loaded. And I'm going to hit that game winning to win the World Series. Well, I know one man who did that, Joe Carter, my roommate. He had that played way before he ever hit that. Visualization. So then there's a replay. So pre-play and replay for visualization. Kid knows nothing about it. So I said, have you ever dreamt that? He says, I have, but I don't know how to do it. So he's very unsure. So I said, have you ever hit a double in the gap and hit it off the wall? And you could see it. I said, that's what you bank and you replay. Because if they throw that pitch in that situation, you're going to replay the same thing and do it again. And then the C, A-V-C. C means center your attention. Oh, I do that all the time. No, you don't. You listen to the coach. You're hearing the fans. You're watching the guy take a lead at the second. Center your inv- all of your attention on what you analyze and what you visualize. Made sense to him. And I said, last but not least, the EX is to execute. So I learned all this from my mentor, one of my best friends. God rest his soul is Dr. Bill Harrison with Slow the Game Down. So Slow the Game Down was George Brett's first introduction to visualization. And you'll see him talk or hear him talk when you ask, what was the secret to your career? It was doing things that others didn't do. And that was being able to visualize things where he could see shadows on the ball. He could go ahead and make the ball spin rate slow down. He could make the ball get bigger. Well, that's one thing saying you need to focus. Okay, great. How do you focus? It cracks me up when a hitting instructor says, stay back. No shit. Tell me how to stay back. Or they say, see the ball. No shit. Tell me how to see it. <laughs> or it's even better, you're out there on the mound with the pitcher, and we're talking with the pitcher. Go, throw strikes, damn it. No, coach, I'm trying to throw balls. Yeah. So all these stupid-ass <laughs> statements about tell me how. And uh, I was very fortunate for Dr. Bill Harrison to go ahead and take all of my instruction visually because obviously all information goes to your eyes, to your brain, and obviously to your body. But nowadays it's body eyes or body brain eyes. It's the exact opposite. But nobody understands that your body's always going to follow your eyes. Your eyes don't follow your body. And when I tell people that, that's what's kind of set me aside from a manager, a coach. And honestly, God, Jamie, I probably coach in the big leagues and they throw me out in a week. And the reason they would is because they're not used to the truth. You got hitters up there, you know, well, I named one, I don't even know the guy, but Joey Gallo swinging out of his ass at retirement in 200, right. in 30 home runs, saying, dude, you're a talent. If you adjust your, I'll give you another one, Bellinger. Bellinger might have the worst physical swing I've ever seen in my life. That's all physical, physical, physical. When you take simple math, simple geometry, and you draw a line, and the ball travels on a path, and his swing goes below the path, through the path, and up and out of the path, that means his bat is staying in the zone, what, the size of a baseball. But he's so gifted, he can do that. What if he ever flattened his swing out to the path of the baseball? How often would he hit the ball? He probably hit 400. I've seen, you know, gone a lot of Cub games, watched Bellinger quite a bit this last year. And to me, again, the difference between someone with your training, your knowledge, your expertise, and me, who I know a little bit about baseball, when I see belly swing, it's to me, it's Ted Williams 
to you, it's dude, you could be Ted Williams. Yeah. You need to do X, Y, and Z. And so I that's that's just fascinating because you pick two guys, two guys that are, you know, big time and Belly's gonna probably sign a ten year, three hundred million dollar contract. Hundred percent. Um you know, that's just the way it is. One, what I want to maybe finish up with is go back to your experience in Japan because mm-hmm. there aren't that many guys that have played ball that long in Japan. And even though it was a while ago, and I say that nicely, the 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 trend has been in the last three years or four years to sign Japanese guys. Mm-hmm. A couple hitters, mostly pitchers. Maybe it's gone on longer than that. You know, Shohei is Shohei. The Cubs just signed a guy. I can't even tell you his name, but he got the win in the World Baseball Classic. Are they, if you're going to predict, predictability is just really, here's my guess. Do these guys have a good chance of succeeding if they were as as studly as we think they were in Japan here in the U.S. or what? In my opinion, in my experience, I played there for five years and I coached there. Uh, they're a different breed. And if they're, I guess you could say, outside the white lines can handle, they'll do fine on the lines. Um, the best players don't hear. The best players only see. So the benefit they have is all the things being said to them by the fans, by the coaches, by peers, by their opponents, they don't they don't hear. Uh, my game went downhill when I went to Japan when I learned to speak Japanese because <laughs> I could hear and understand oh, yeah. what they're saying. But when I didn't hear anything, I had one thing to do. See the ball, hit the ball. Right. So my That's task great. at hand was see the ball as deep as I could and hit it as hard as I could. And 40 home runs later, making the all-star team, all this. And then I go ahead and try to put myself and embed myself in the culture. And holy smokes, yeah. wait, I'm fat, I'm ugly, I'm this, I'm that. <laughs> hey, you can't say that. And now all of a sudden you're bothered. Oh, man. That all being said, I think that those guys coming over – initially kind of like Suzuki, Ichiro, he didn't even care. He, he's the unicorn, though. But if you remember, when Otani came over, he wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. He couldn't hit. He was just okay. He had to adjust. And I think great players like him, which is he's obviously the GOAT at this certain point in time, he's learned to do it. He's mentally tough. And uh, the new kids coming over, I could tell you this, the game over there and here are night and day. It isn't the same game. Yeah. So there's going to be an adjustment period. So my answer to your question would be, are they going to do well if they adjust? Yeah. But it's a hard adjustment, cuisine, language, socially. I mean, you're only on that field, what, five hours, six hours a day? Once that's over, what are you going to do? So if he has good caregivers, good caretakers, and they treat him right and they bring him out, help him with the English, help him with the cuisine, that's going to affect him more than it is on the field. Because on the field, you cook in the gear, as you know. You are well, a ball player. It, it, it's a lot easier to adjust when you're making $30 million a year than when you're making 300 a month. <laughs> well, yes and no. Let me, let, me tell you the difference. let me tell you the difference. That. If you're a great player, and I'll give you a perfect example, the great players put more onus on being greater when they get more money to prove to people, I deserve this. Yeah. The bums will take their one check. Uh, I'm not saying he's a bum, but what was he named? He came from Boston to the Yankees. Ellsbury? Yeah. So I love that kid. He was a great center fielder for Boston a little bit. All of a sudden he signs this 
$150 million deal never to be heard of again. Yeah. You and, know, that's a, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast, man. That's such yeah. a, to me, that's fascinating how you can, you can pay one guy, Bryce Harper and Harper, whether you're paying him a buck or exactly. 50 million, the dude's going to put a hundred percent in every day and play yeah. with, play with this ferocious, great desire. Yeah, he'd hand, want to beat his mother. That guy's he's he's just uh, he's yeah. a unicorn. He yeah. wants to be that was Barry. Barry Bonds want to be a unicorn. And you take another guy and I think psychologically it's hard for these clubs to invest so much money because I'm telling you what, just guessing, I would say at least half of the people that you give a lifetime deal to are gonna say, Well, I'm going to work hard, but I ain't going to worry about it and work that hard. So, well, you just saw the comments by Anthony Rondon, right? Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, you, you've been given and you've been blessed to go yeah. ahead and play baseball and get paid hundreds of millions, hundreds of millions, not millions, hundreds of millions, and you want the season to be shorter. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, oh my god! Well, you know, with these guys, Rondon, Trout, uh, the big boys that are making. I mean, it's like you go to your – in major leagues, generally the guys – forget the deferment stuff, but generally they take their money in six-month increments. And that would mean for the these guys that go to the post – they go to their mailbox. I know it's all wired. and But, I mean, sure. there's $2 million or $3 million for you and a million for the government every friggin' month for six months. It's like, do I really give a shit if I, you know – Play with a little right. more arm. So, right, hey, right. This first, I got to ask this out of all the positions you played, was there any position that you thought was just eh? Because we all, most people think, oh, anybody can go play first, which is definitely not true. But wow. between all the positions you played, um, they all have intricate nuances. But like, first base isn't any more simple than. Third, really, you may have to have a little quicker reaction, but you got all sorts of different problems with base runners, throws to yep. second base. What well, you know, how how did you do that? And the second part is in Japan, could you tell the ball was a different size? Because they're making a big deal about that in Chicago, yeah. that they the baseball was a niche smaller in Japan. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's true or not. Well, to answer your first question. It's significantly different and just as difficult every position. When I go to that position, it says, wow, I've never played a position that's this difficult. Why? Because it was new. I played nothing but catcher coming up through the minor leagues uh, starting in 78. That's all I knew. And during high school and college, I never touched the catcher's gear. But when they told me that uh, we only have two catchers and both of them got hurt, can you catch? That was straight out of Randy Henley's mouth. I said, absolutely. My first game I caught in Bradenton, Florida in 1978 was a guy by the name of Kirby. And uh, out of Santa Clara, he was like a number five pick. Threw a no-hitter. And I'm going, catching's easy. This is a piece of cake. <laughs> so it didn't phase me at all. I mean, nobody ran. Nobody was on base. <laughs> I didn't miss any balls because everything was perfect. Yeah. So the no-hitter's done. We get done. And over there in rookie ball, you play every day at one o'clock. So game two, I'm the only catcher. Uh, and I'm not exaggerating one bit. I had at least a dozen pass balls. 
I had at least 10 guys steal a base. I had every ball that hit the dirt wild pitch. And I'm like, this position sucks. I never want to catch in my life. So Randy Huntley at the end of the game is laughing. I'm in the whirlpool, cracking up. He's saying, hey, I knew this was going to happen, but I just want to make sure that you still want to be a catcher. I go, Skip, if it's the last thing I do, I'm going to be a major league catcher. So I ended up going down to Instructional League that year in 78. I'm going to Puerto Rico, and I built my craft. And I tell all the kids that catch now that it will listen to me because the new style just absolutely makes me want to puke. But uh, I talk to them, they go, oh, you're old school. Oh, you're too old. Coach Mike, you're just an old man. Okay, I go, yeah, you got that right. I'm old, I'm fat, I'm ugly. But I did play in the big leagues. I did learn from two of the guys who invented the damn glove. One of them was Randy Hunley, look it up. The other guy's Johnny Bench, look it up. Then they come back, we had no idea. How would you? You make these, you know, these statements based on what people are putting in your ear. So it took me three years, Jamie, three years to go and learn how to catch. Think about that. Three years, I'm a professional, and I'm playing every day, and I'm making the all-star team at rookie ball, A-ball, double-A. I had Roy Hartsfield. Uh, I had some managers. Uh, I had Jim Fergosi. Um, I had just some great, great people around me, and they took the time to say, kid, and it was always the same. You can hit you just got to learn how to catch the damn ball. Well, I'm going, dang, there's got to be something easier than catching. But the problem was everybody that I was up against, whether it be the minor leagues or the major leagues, there was somebody just as good. Sure. That mean I was going to platoon or he hit left and I didn't hit right, whatever. But the point was is I had to learn something else. So the first guy to come to me was Leland. And he says, kid, you can play every day, just a different position. You're going to learn to play outfield left and right. Third base, first base, take ground balls and put in the work when they put in their work. You just got to go extra. And he goes, I'll let you know when the left-hander's pitching a day in advance because obviously when you go into a series, you know who's going to pitch. And he'd let me know this is when you got to get ready and not work as hard, but I'm going to be putting you in left field or I'm going to be putting you at first base or you're going to catch. So I was well enough prepared, specifically in the big leagues, to play a position. But I had to put in overtime when I knew I wasn't playing on those five positions. What's overtime mean to a big leaguer? It means I'm out there at noon, literally every single day. Yeah. And at noon, go and play a position, not exaggerating for a half hour with that specific coach. So outfielder, when I was at the Pirates, I had uh, I had uh, Bill Verdon. In every type of situation, from hurry-up throws to ground balls to hitting in the corner, what have you, he taught me. And then the same thing with the catching. I had Milt May. So... What better guys on the infield? Yeah. I had the great uh, one of my better friends that back in the day uh, loved him to death was uh, Morrison. So Jimmy Morrison uh, just took me under his wing. Billy Allman, Lee Mazzelli. Oh, oh. You're talking about guys where I owe them everything on uh, literally how to go ahead and be a professional. That's why I kind of get sick of the things that's going on now. People say I'm old school. I'm not old school. I was brought up the way professionals before me brought up the game. In fact, bringing up, and I'll stop here because I know we got to go, the the Hall of Fame speech of Ryan Sandberg when he got inducted, because I play with Rhino, play golf with him all the time, and I'm so sorry about his prostate yeah. cancer. But that being said, he was all about playing the game the right way. And if you pull up that speech from the Hall of Fame, I don't think it hit enough people to make him understand. He wasn't this great talent. 
he was a blue collar guy who could run, who could hit with power, who could hit for average, who could field. But he wasn't no freaking Latino who could go ahead and do like right. a Lindor, whatever that. This dude was a blue collar worker who said, play the game the right way. Say the right things, run the right things. So I learned that a lot from him. And uh, we're the same age. And I look back at him and I just said, man, you're you're a gift to baseball. I wish more people would have followed your career, being humble. Your humility was second to none. Your appreciation, your integrity to the game, uh, your work. You didn't cheat the game. Nowadays, and I can't say this because I'm not around it, but from what I see, it's all about me, me, I. It's not about the game. Yeah. Man, you've been blessed to get the opportunity to play that game. So earlier during our conversation, I, said, I couldn't coach at the major league level. I'd last a week. But uh, when I could go ahead, I just saw Deion Sanders talking about I'd never coach in the NFL because I don't have an impact. Well, I impact six-year-olds. I impact 12-year-olds. I impact 18-year-olds. Most of all, if you let me impact you at the major league level, and I could say this, if this ever gets back to a kid like Cody Bellinger, I could have him hitting 400. But why? I'm making 300 million. I don't need to do anything. Or I could get Gallo hitting 300 and hitting 40 home runs. Why? I get paid 30 million. Yeah. That's the feedback I get. So I guess the game's passed me by. I don't know. But I do know the kids that I work with, they all go to college. They all get their education paid for. And like I said, I've been here over 40 years. And uh, Maui, we don't have a big choice. And what we're doing right now with kids, if we had people to go ahead, and you know how they do it, I'm sure you've done this too. Third world countries, they get on TV and they say, yeah, if you donate 100 bucks a month, you're going to go ahead and feed a kid for life. Well, I've done that all the time. In fact, my dad used to give, thinking Jimmy Swagger 25 bucks a month. Like, I don't even know why, but he did. Yeah. So long story short, <laughs> if we had people in the big leagues, or for that matter, anybody who could afford to go ahead and pay a kid $8.33 a day, $250 a month and say, that's my kid. You would go and give a kid to be what? A better person, a better son, a better sibling, a better player, a better person in society. And you had something to do straight up saying, I'm giving $250 a month to this kid because when he becomes an adult, I have something to do with that life. Yeah, That's what we need. Well, you're right on Sandberg, man. I mean, he's he's probably one of the least appreciated members of the Hall of Fame. Uh, yeah. We had last week, um, again, for uh, a fairly regular visit once a year. It's one of the guys you got traded for, uh, Bobby Denier, who I don't yeah. think we've met yet. But, but uh, yeah. we laugh about you and we laugh about him. But he stayed. You know, he can't he, – Rhino was in that organization with Philadelphia, and yeah. uh, and so Denier has stayed super close. And he was talking about the uh, statue of Sandberg that they're de- they're dedicating in June. And awesome. ultimately, you know, prostate cancer—if you catch it soon enough, it's okay. Now I don't know. Yeah, you know, they're they're using big words that it metastasized, and did it get out of the? I don't know. This isn't a medical show, but hopefully. Hopefully, Rhino can uh, can handle yeah. it. And they've come a long ways with uh, um, treatment for prostate cancer. I had it, and uh, and here oh. I am, fat as ever. But how long ago? How long ago did you have it? Uh, Two thousand and eight. So oh, I've wow. been, I've been can They took it out and they got it early. 
And Congrats. that's awesome. You know, uh, we'll drink a beer in Maui and uh, we'll talk, and I'll give you some of the details of that side. Yeah. But uh, I look forward to our next conversation. Uh, we love it. The listeners love it. Don't go anywhere. I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, hold on here. All right, folks. There you have it, Mike Diaz. Man, not only was he a great baseball player, and I don't use that word lightly. He is just a spectacular human being. I mean, he just really uh, emboldens the uh, uh, a lot of things about what makes baseball different from every other sport. You know, he he talks about his uh, God given abilities, and uh, you know, maybe he wasn't uh, like a Tony Caniglero, but by God, what a good guy! What a fun guy! And um, I'm going to get some information and see about trying to do something to help somebody in Maui, you know, uh, he, we don't realize how bad that, that really was. So anyway, for the uh, folks on uh, Spotify and on SoundCloud and on Apple iTunes, Hey, 2024, this is going to be a good year. It's, you know, it's just fun to talk to a guy like, uh, like Mike. So uh, everybody be good, be healthy, stay warm. Stripe it down the middle. I'm heading out to the West Coast next week, so I plan on trying to get a little bit of uh, turf that doesn't have snow on it. So for Jamie Reske and my producer in Honolulu, Mr. Tyler Preston, who puts the music and the edit to this great show, uh, stay safe, and uh, we will be with you soon. 